Welcome to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for raising tweens and teens. Okay, so I'm going to start with a little fangirling for a minute. Today, we're going to be with Kelly Corrigan. I'm a massive fan of Kelly Corrigan. I've read all of her books. I'm going to tell you them so you can get them. They're great. The Middle Place, Glue and Glitter, Lift, and Tell Me More. I've watched all of her interviews, the old ones on Medium and the new ones on PBS, and they're all excellent. And I've become a fan of her popular Instagram account. And now I've listened to 19 episodes of her new podcast, Kelly Corrigan Wonders. Kelly can intellectually spar with anyone on any topic. Now, she does something in her second episode where she interviews Nadia Boltzweber, And she kind of calls her out for something she's impressed with. She watched Game of Thrones, all of it, in two weeks, which apparently is 63 hours. That's a lot of watching, and that's (laughs) impressive. I'm hoping that one day Kelly Corrigan is going to introduce me as the person who listened to all 19 episodes in one weekend. Each one is beautiful and worth your time. And what I wondered is, how do we apply all the wisdom shared by Kelly and her guests to parenting teenagers? We are going to start with some of the themes that were early on in Kelly's podcast. The theme was around like the things we throw out there, the sayings that we have that we kind of believe them because so many people say them. But if you think about it, it's like the first one I really never liked. Everything happens for a reason. Like I just have never liked that at all because it's always said in someone's crisis, right? Like, you know, you have a miscarriage. Someone says, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. Really? Does everything in my life or your life feel like it happens for a reason? Nope. (laughs) I bristle at that same one. I find it so insensitive. (laughs) Coming from someone who's not so sensitive, but I do find it very insensitive. (laughs) And how do you know you're not not sensitive? Have you been told that in your life? (laughs) Just a few times. I'm working on it. I'm really working on it. So, yeah, but I do. I find that I'm like, really? It's just so... I keep thinking about something I was listening to recently and the person was saying, I can't remember what I was listening to. And they were talking about how people just want to be seen, right? I want to be seen. And when you say that, like, did you see me? Did you hear me? It just feels so tone deaf. I think a lot of it is out of the motive to fill space. Mm -hmm. And so there are situations that are just so uncomfortable and people don't know what to say. But silence is always an option. And there is always the one, how are you doing? Like, that's always a good thing to say. This imposes something on another person that, you know, more often than not, you're not ready to hear that. Or not not even ready. That's the wrong word. Like, it's not your experience. It does not feel that way. Yeah. It's just, it, you know, it just feels untrue. Let's just right. go with that. Right, right. So don't say that one anymore. There's really never yeah, a time where that done. works. We're done. Okay. <laughs> okay, the next one. This one, you know... I have always had trouble with this one also. I'm just so aligned with Kelly Corrigan. Okay, the next one is never give up. So, I mean, I don't know how I felt about that when I was younger, but as a parent, I don't know. I think there are sometimes, like there's a balance. You don't want to be somebody who always gives up. Yeah. But don't we all sometimes decide to opt out of something that we committed to? Like it's not working. Well, and also it doesn't have to be never give up does not have to be I'm giving up my job. It could be, I'm working on this puzzle. I give up. 
You like you can walk away with it. Like it does not have to be this huge thing, right? Like it makes it sound like you're you're stepping. Like I give up. I hit. Uh, I'm in my residency and I just can't take it anymore. And I've invested all this time. Like it can be something simple. Yeah, but know? what if that were a thing? Like you know, honestly, I there are people who they they are going to go and incur debt in law mm-hmm. school to finish it because someone told them. Many people told them never give up. When in fact, maybe they were done after year one, maybe they got everything out of it to know that they didn't want to practice law. Like there are, there are moments in life where we can look at it as like, I had enough of that. I don't have anything to prove to go to that very, the finish line. Okay. Do you think that the never give up is an internal thing or, or something that we feel when it's been either a parent, a a stakeholder in our life has put on us? Do you think that's an internal or an external? I mean, I guess external becomes internal, but do you know what I'm saying? Well, I think it's both. I mean, I think there are some people that live with that adage. They, they, they've grown up with it. It's been imbued in everything they do. Never give up, never give up. I think, you know, we all, there are moments where we all have to recognize that for our kids in particular, like I think a lot of things happen if we're talking about raising teenagers because what our kid is doing means something to us. So like my kid wanted to quit piano and I was devastated because Mm -hmm. I loved him playing piano. I loved hearing him practice. Like it was really a joy in our house. And so like those kind of things, like, you know, when people quit sports, I mean, I saw what it was like to be a football mom. It's a culture. So when your kid says they don't want to play anymore, it's your loss and you you didn't even get a vote. What do you mean I don't get a vote in this? So I think I think there are a lot of sides to to that that story and I don't think that there's a always a right answer. Oh it's it's never an absolute never give. Yeah. Yeah, fair. The next topic that Kelly covered and I think it was her third episode was what you don't know can't hurt you. She talks to somebody who finds out after doing 23 and me that she was adopted. And she herself says I have no regret about finding out. I needed to know this. It, it made my life make sense to find it out. But it's so interesting. I think, you know, so much is, is about the time also. Like today, we really believe in telling our kids things. Yeah. Because over the years, it's been clear that it didn't work out well when you kept things from kids. But do you think it's true? Have you ever felt like there was something that you had to hold on to because what you don't know can't hurt you? Well, okay, so you know I'm not good with double negatives, so I'm— I have to like read it a few times to understand that. So does that mean that what you can what you do know can hurt you? Yeah. Okay. I still don't get it. <laughs> so it what means I that if I t- if I tell you something terrible that happened, yeah, or something terrible about you yourself, okay, that it's going to change the trajectory of your life, and I don't want to be responsible for that. Right. But if I don't know it, then it can't hurt. No. I yeah. I guess I totally disagree with it because it can hurt me. Right. It could totally like you're saying like, well, I mean, that's a great example is, you know, like the DNA testing. Sure. Like information and that would be necessary. But yeah, I don't know. And yet I have I have a couple friends who found out about like half siblings when somebody passed away and like some crazy stuff that. Yeah, it, it so it, well. I think I think I feel like it pulls the rug out from under you because you yeah. lived one life and it turns out you were living a, a, a lie. But that goes to me that knowing is better than not knowing. Right? Yeah. Like, and maybe it's timing, like to what you just said before. They're, right? Is is a five-year-old, you know, telling a five-year-old they're a job? I don't know. Pick something, right? But there could be timing involved where they're just not mature enough or you're waiting for, you know, a, the right time. I don't know. I think yeah. it's kind of a weird one. 
it, it is a weird one, but really, truthfully, you never, it never is, you don't die with the secret. Somewhere it comes out and it just causes such pain and harm at that point in time that like we should tell each other. I mean, we all hold secrets, but these are big ones. These are some, these are actually someone else's secret. That's the thing. It's not your oh, secret to keep. It's someone yeah. else's secret that you withheld from them. So what you don't know can't hurt you is a tough one. Like we, we can't come to such clarity on that one, but here's the next one. Trust your gut. I I say as I'm aging, my gut keeps getting bigger, so it's getting harder to ignore it. (laughs) There's no double negative here. I don't think that's what it means. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. No, no, out of all of these, I actually trust your gut is probably the one I can relate most to. I don't bristle at that one. Because I do think that, I guess, I, I can only talk about myself. That tends to serve me well. And so I'm it's always kicking myself when I go against it. I think trust your gut also as a parent. But the point that they were making is that, is it possible that there's information that you don't have or that your lens on the world doesn't give you all the information that you have? Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. I mean, I always, like, as I've gotten older, I, I always say, like, I trust my gut until you prove me wrong. You know, it's like, <laughs> and, and the thing is, I'm kind of delighted when my gut was wrong because, you know, I've spent so much of my life so certain that mm-hmm. that, that feeling that I got was 100% sure. And now I could see that, like, there's, there's room for error in my gut. <laughs> <laughs> Do we use these platitudes with our kids? Like, I was trying to think as we were getting ready for the podcast, I was trying to think of, like, what will my kids say are the things that we've always said. And it's funny, there have been a few over time where I heard Lane, Lane was probably nine or 10, and she was telling me a story of how her friend wanted her to go talk to the grown-up. There was something, right? The kid didn't want to do it. She wanted Lane to do it. And Lane's like, yeah. So I looked at her and I said, you've got a mouth. You can use it. That's my mom's line. So I clearly have used it. Like, that did not come out of nowhere. So we still say that. She's got a mouth. She can use it. Yeah, so I guess some of these some of these aren't hurtful, you yeah. know, to say it or to feel it. The first one, everything happens for a reason. That that's That's a tough one. So up next is our amazing conversation with Kelly Corrigan. I can't use superlatives enough because, as we know, I have, I'm a fan. We can't wait for you to join us. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, 
for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Our guest today is Kelly Corrigan. Kelly Corrigan has written four New York Times bestselling memoirs in the last 15 years, including The Middle Place, Lift, Glitter and Glue, and Tell Me More. She is the host of PBS's Tell Me More with Kelly Corrigan, where she's talked with guests including the likes of James Corden and Jennifer Garner. She also hosts the podcast Kelly Corrigan Wonders. O Magazine calls her the voice of a generation. Thanks for being here with us, Kelly. You describe Kelly Corrigan Wonders as a place for people who like to laugh while they think and find it useful to look closely at ourselves and our weird ways in the hope that knowing more and feeling more might help us do more and be better. You were so impressed with one of your guests, Nadia Bowles-Weber, for watching all of Games of Thrones in two weeks. (laughs) 63 hours. I'm hoping that one day you'll introduce me as the person who listened to all 19 episodes in one weekend. Each one is beautiful and worth our time. What I wondered is, how do we apply the wisdom shared by you and your guests to parenting teenagers? So the first one, the top 10 from 2020. Two things on your list. Giving is the easiest way out of a funk. I love that one. And the big one for parents, probably more moms than dads, is your emotional intake of your kids' emotions, absorbing everything they feel as if it's your own. So let's start with those two. Okay. So at the end of the year, I thought I would do this top, like 10 weirdly encouraging things about 2020, which was by and large, not the most encouraging year on record. This idea about giving and getting yourself out of a funk I think you could do it at a micro level. Like you could just think about another person. Like there are tons of meditations where all you do is just think about other people. And it's much more pleasant, infinitely more pleasant to think about other people than it is to think about yourself. I do it in the middle of the night. Like when I wake up and I'm worrying about some part of my job or a book I'm working on or an interview that's coming up. And then I just shift my thinking to someone that I care about a lot who's going through any number of things that people have been going through lately and across time in memoriam. Oh my God, that is the biggest gift for us in the middle of the night. I was just thinking, oh my God, now I can hardly wait to take my 17 naps tonight. Now I will have things to do in between. I'm so psyched. Yeah, so just keep a short list of who who is, it's like my mom is a big, um, like, you know, she does the rosary in the night when she wakes up, when she's between her 17 (laughs) naps. And people have prayer lists and worry dolls, but the difference is shifting your focus onto someone else. Like this sweet person just wrote me today to say that her mom died and she's really struggling. And like, she'll be on my list tonight. That's who I'll think about. Better to think about Rosie than to think about me. It's unproductive, all this self-thought. And it's never, not once in any research project across time or culture been proven to take us anywhere good. Like self-focus is the opposite direction of where you want to be if you want to be happy. I remember I used to, there's like another way of saying this. I used to hold babies in the NICU at Children's Hospital Oakland. And these are babies that just had surgery or they were born very, very young, premature. When I went there, I was a total nobody. Like people didn't even 
acknowledge me. I was just in service. And then when my dad was dying, I was watching these two in particular, these two hospice nurses and thinking, you're so important and you're you're in the most selfless role and I'll never forget you. And it's just a hundred percent service. And I hope you feel as good as you should feel when you go to sleep at night, because you are showing my family how to let go of this person that is like equally important to each of us. So the idea of like being small and in service to something else or someone else, like you just can't be that miserable. That's really beautiful. That is really, really beautiful. Thank you. And the other part to that question was how we absorb our kids' pain. Yeah, it's just so hard. It's just, I mean, I feel like... um that is the one of the all-time biggest challenges of parenthood is that I could practically feel it if Georgia has gas. You know, like I can see her face and I can see her body language and I can, I think I can interpret it pretty accurately. And if she is unhappy or feeling moody or tired or cranky or anxious about something that hasn't yet unfolded, it just seeps into me. It's like I'm completely porous, you know? And it's that's really not doing anybody any favors. Like that, that's a first of all, it's the last thing on earth she wants. She does not want me to be that engaged with her stuff emotionally. It's all gonna end and and a new emotion will come. I mean, that's like the most predictable, you know, you can set your watch by that. Like all emotions end, all the good ones, all the bad ones, they all end. And so if I were to just stay busy and keep my head down. The next time I looked up, she'd be in a different state, a different emotional state, and I wouldn't have gone on the ride. But we're so crammed in with each other right now, and there's so much FaceTime and shared space that it's really hard not to glance across the room and see your kid, you know, sort of slumped over their Zoom class. And it's hard not to let that affect how you feel, but it's it's not in service of anybody. You're not a better parent for doing that. And when you say FaceTime, you may mean literally <laughs> this kind of seeing each other. Yeah, I mean, she's just, you know, <laughs> sitting on Zoom, like doing the same thing we're doing, except it's, you know, AP anatomy. You were talking about how emo- every emotion ends. And the one thing that does not end is the quest for dinner. So you gave a right? you gave a bunch of it. I wish it would end, but it doesn't. Um, so you gave a bunch of examples of things that you do to make dinner an event during COVID. And to say that Sue and I are desperate for great ideas is probably the understatement of the pandemic. So can you share with us? Yeah, I mean, a, a thing that we've been so our kids are seventeen and nineteen. So we have a senior in high school and a sophomore in college. And one thing is that we've been letting each person like host a dinner party. Like tonight is my dinner party at our house. So we're having veggie chili. And that means that I'm responsible for setting the table and serving the meal and cleaning up after the meal. And and that means that I might get some modicum of satisfaction out of that rather than a modicum of frustration that nobody's helping me. It also means that I have tomorrow night off because it's not my dinner party. <laughs> it also means that I don't have to like negotiate and debate with anybody about what we're going to have for dinner because it's just not worth it. It's not worth the negotiation or the debate. Like we're going to have dinner together 6,000 more times. Like who cares what's t- what's tonight and what's tomorrow? So does it get rid of the question, so, what's for dinner? Kind of. Like Claire, so Claire's going tomorrow night and I don't know what she's serving. And then Edward goes the next night and I don't know what he's serving. But the other thing is this sort of like emerged in our marriage as like a like a dinner captain or a trip captain or a day captain, which is 
rather than like say, what do you want? What do you want? What do you think? Well, what can we do? We could do this. We could do that. A person will just announce I'm the day captain on Saturday. And it's like, great. And your job as not the day captain is just to go on the day, enjoy it and be grateful. No second guessing. No. Oh, well, it would have been better if we went on this hike. You just go along for the ride and you just do nothing but express gratitude for not having to think of the thing to do. And Wait, so, so what's these, that role called? That's a day captain. If the you're day captain day. doesn't do the planning. They do the planning. Ah, the, they so run what's the, the other person? What's the other person called? The freeloader. <laughs> <laughs> they, but you know, you just get to go along for the ride. And, and then that way, like it can be very satisfying to like plan a fun day for your family. If you get all the credit and you and nobody second guesses you and you get to surprise people, like that's kind of fun. But the other thing that we've been doing at dinner, which is so silly, but definitely put music on, no news, mm. t- turn off the television and light a candle and then clear off the table before we have chocolate. We have like a little bit of chocolate every night and then play one game. So we, we're big Remy Ooh. Cube people, but we also like hearts. We like dice. We like this card game called Pitch. We like this other card game called King and Scum that I used to play in college. So yeah, so that's like a nice routine and, it, and there's no phones at the table, that kind of stuff. And then you had something about putting words or something under plates. I mean, oh you had my a whole God. other bunch of... So that really didn't last. <laughs> that, Sue, I can tell you, that was a complete bust. So what, what I thought on my night when I was dinner captain was... Oh, if we have like Moroccan food, then I'll put a little quiz under the plates about like how many people live in Morocco and, you know, what's the biggest export of Morocco. Did they they revolt? (laughs) They were like, this is so stupid. And then I said, I know, but like we got to think of something new to talk about every night. And then Georgia said, uh, let's do office trivia from the TV show, The Office. And oh my God, like we, first of all, they're just endless (laughs) office trivia quizzes online. You know, you could, there are like a thousand questions that you can access. They were savants. They they were amazing. And it was really just became just a speed game entirely because their knowledge of the series is complete for both people. So it's just a matter of who can spit the words out faster. I'm a little relieved by that first part of the story because I thought I, if I would put something under my kid's plate and say, this is what we're doing, the eye rolling I know. I know. would be untenable. Like I just wouldn't be able to go from there. So yeah, I'm, that's a, what I'm a little relieved. Oh yeah. Thank you. Okay. So we're going to move into the, the podcast series and remind me what the first four weeks, what the topic was for the first four weeks. What conventional wisdom turns out to be not that wise after all. Okay. So we so- ask people to tell me like the, the little platitude or maxim or motto that they hate the most that just drives them bananas. And then we sort of dug in on each one. Okay. So the first one has always, always rubbed me so wrong. Everything happens for a reason. Yeah. And people use it at a time when it it's horrible. Like, yeah. you know, you're going through something awful. So that conversation was amazing. And out of that, I'm trying to look at this through the lens of parenting teenagers because that's what we talk about. And I thought there were two really wonderful sound bites that came out of it that really do apply to, to raising teenagers. So the, the first one is, all our specialness doesn't exempt us from suffering. So Kate Bowler was my guest for that. And she is a divinity professor at Duke. She's also an author and a podcaster and a stage four cancer patient. And so she has wisdom 
sort of flowing into her and out of her in ways that most people don't. I think that's a thing to people have to adjust to over and over and over again, which was like, I thought I was doing such a good job and it didn't matter. Like in with teenagers, I think about how much, like I think a really painful thing to come with to come to grips with is the idea that even if you want something so badly, the boy, the spot on the varsity lacrosse team, the body, the acceptance into some college, like it doesn't add, it doesn't count for Jack how much you want it. And it seems like it should. It seems like in some sort of universe where there's a giant accounting that just your sheer passion for something should tip the scales in your favor. And I remember getting shot down. I really wanted to go to UVA for some reason. And I got shot down and I remember thinking like, but I wanted it so badly. And I remember Georgia really wanted to play varsity as a freshman in lacrosse and she didn't make it. And she said, I, this is the only thing I want. And I was like, I know. And isn't that weird that it just doesn't matter? Well, I think in the, a time where we're so busy telling our kids how special they are, this statement just, it lays the groundwork for life. It just doesn't matter how special you are. You are not going to avoid pain and disappointment. And that's no reason to not continue to be special. Whatever's special about you has its own rewards. And it's up to you to tune into them and appreciate them. They're not the, you can't sort of pay for what you want with your specialness, but your specialness is paying you back nonetheless. Okay, so the next the next thing with Kate was, and she's experienced this, when tragedy hits someone, listen more and talk less. Yeah. That's so hard for us. I know. I know. My my thought, we we talked about that a lot. People are really nervous when when mortality comes up. Like when this young mom with this young kid is maybe not going to live a really, really long life. That's super unsettling for people. And when people are unsettled, they talk too much. I think my takeaway, I had cancer when I was 36 and I had a one-year-old and a two-year-old. My takeaway is follow their lead. So there were days when I really wanted to talk about my the disease and the treatment and the side effects of chemotherapy and you know fears about other lumps and bumps and moles aches and pains and what it all added up to. And then there were days where I really wanted to like sit on my deck and drink Corona and listen to some little feet and not talk about it. And it was just interesting to note like who could follow my mood and who wanted to disrupt it or lead with their mood. And that's like a thing I've carried with me into future scenarios where I'm not the protagonist, where someone else is going through something. And it's it's easy. I've, I find it easy to follow other people's moods almost everywhere in the world except my daughters. Like for instance, if they want to be alone, if they say, you know, I don't want to talk about it right now. I just want to be alone. That's like damn near impossible for me to walk away from. Like I'm just so eager to either get out of my own psychic pain, which is like my daughter's upset and I want to help her be not upset so that I don't have to feel like I feel right now. Or it's because I can't imagine really that a person would want to be alone when they say they want to be alone. So that maybe they're 
they're saying that because they're feeling proud, but what they really want is for me to stay and to hug them. And I don't know if I'm right. I don't know if I'm, if what I'm doing is selfless or selfish. Don't they let you know? It's kind of, I feel like I kind of get mixed signals. Like I'm not really sure. Because sometimes if I stay, then it all comes like bursting out. And I think Edward, my husband is probably like, see, like, you know, you, you drew it to, you drew it to a head. And I think, right, exactly. Like better out than in, like, let it all come out. Oh, he's I saying like, it I don't negatively. like suppressing tears. I like extracting them. And maybe that's not what they want. Maybe my girls would rather it not be a big thing every time. I don't know. I just don't know, you know? I'll find out when they write memoirs when they're 40. Okay, so the next one is Never Give Up, Nadia Bowles-Weber. Yeah, she's a There are two, well, the first one, you can't be anything you want to be. I know she was so funny about that, wasn't she? (laughs) So she said that they're, you know, that it's so American to be like, never give up and like, you could be the CEO someday or but, you know, she's like, you're not going to be a doctor. You're not going to be an Olympic gymnast. And you're not going to be like an opera singer, you know? Plenty of doors are open without having to to propagate this idea that all doors are open. Like, at some point, the doors start closing here and there. I mean, I suppose if, like, you know, I, I'm not going to be an astronaut. 53 years old, I'm not going to be an astronaut. I thought it was so great of her to say that because I think it's, I know from talking to my kids that sometimes that can be really stressful, that either there's this pressure that's perceived that it's like, well, shit, if I can be anything, like, what should I be? I shouldn't, I should know, you know, I should have answers. I should have direction. I should have passions. I should have special skills to put in this box on this stupid application. And if I don't, like, who am I? What am I? I'm like so uninteresting. I'm so unspecial. The other thing is, I think that they know at some level that it's not entirely true. And I think every time they're told something with great conviction by an adult that they have an instinct is not entirely true, they may lose a little bit of faith in their adults, in the adults that that they rely on. And that's really unsettling. It's like way better to feel like, Like I have all kinds of business relationships. I'm sure you do too. But I have one where this guy never says anything he doesn't do. He's like the most reliable person I deal with in in any project across my life. I love him. And I think, oh, that's what my kids want from me. They want me to never overpromise, never underdeliver, which means like keep your statements a little smaller. Allow for complexity. Don't promise them the moon. Boy, that's got my head reeling. Mm -hmm. And the other one, and I love this, is this idea of celebrating, celebrate the stories of resetting with the same enthusiasm we celebrate stories of never giving up. Yeah, isn't that, I I thought that was really great too. This is fun to like remember these conversations Mm -hmm. with you guys. I do think that, you know, as a person who writes stories for a living, I'm very tuned into the archetypal themes and the sort of expectations of the reader that there's going to be this arc, there's going to be a hero and a villain and a, and a journey and lessons learned and and some action that, you know, crests in some way. And then the hero is 
changed for the better. And I don't know necessarily that that's how things work so often. And to me, I find it really encouraging to learn about, like for instance, this is so stupid, but I just heard this podcast that Julia Louise Dreyfus was on and she tried out for a role in About Last Night. Remember About Last Night with Demi Moore and Rob Lowe? So remember how she had that friend, Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Perkins, who was like kind of snarky and like, you know, that's the role that Julia Louise Dreyfus wanted. And she didn't get it. And I just thought that was such a spectacular piece of information for me to have because I, I mean, I think Julia Louise Dreyfus is like it. I think she is the funniest woman on television by a long shot. And I love knowing that she didn't get that dumb sidekick <laughs> role years ago. And I love knowing that she still remembers it. Like that's much more helpful to me than the story of how she got the job as Selena Myers on Veep. Yeah, it's it's helpful. It it puts perspective on the lives that we look at and we envy when we see when we hear their backstory. Like my kids love stories about me getting in trouble, me telling <laughs> lies, me making mistakes, me misunderstanding things. Like they love that I didn't know. I mean, I mentioned that I wanted to go to UVA and I ended up going to University of Richmond and I didn't even know how many students went to UVA. I didn't know that there was such a thing as college classes where there would be hundreds of people. Like at Richmond, the classes are like 25 people. And some of my classes are 12 people. And that's like perfect way for me to learn. I didn't even know to ask that of UVA. I was so brand driven. I was like, that's cool school. I know a couple of people who go there and they're really cool. And I want to be cool like those people. I didn't think at all, you know, sort of rationally about this enormous purchase that I was asking my parents to make on my behalf, I couldn't have told you one thing. Because you didn't have Ron Lieber's book. Yeah. <laughs> Such a good book. So the, the, um, the ultimate transition. So um, you interview your friend's son, Alex, who is a transgender boy. Yes. And it's powerful and moving and everyone should listen to it. You don't have to have a transgender child to find this moving and to be changed by it. And you're going to know one. And it would be helpful to have this in your heart when you meet that person. Absolutely. So there were two points that you made that I thought were so beautiful. There is no moment as sublime as when you find out that you are not the only one. Mm-hmm. That was so moving. I used to have, I, or I had a panic attack, like a really bad one and then a couple more after that, but a really bad one in New York when I was 29 and I was in the middle of a business meeting. And... uh you know, and, and like somehow the meeting finished and it was all fine. But but in my head, I was like, I'm going to get in the elevator. I'm going to go flag an ambulance. Like, I, I don't know what's happening to me right now, but it's not good. And like, I guess maybe this is what it feels like to be on the verge of a heart attack. Or, I mean, I just had no context for it. I'd never heard the word panic. I did. The word anxiety was not like thrown around like it is now. It was not a known thing to me. And then I came home and I told my mom and I thought, oh my God, she's going to think I'm going crazy. I mean, I felt like I was going crazy. And she called this woman and the woman said, this is called a panic attack. And then we looked it up and my mom's, she had one of those like diagnostic medical massive directories. And it was there. It was there on the, on, in the directory with a name. And I, I mean, I almost was better that instant. It was like, oh, okay. This is like a thing. And the same when I had cancer, like I had a, very large tumor was seven centimeters by four centimeters. And I was very young, but the minute that it was defined, 
And it was clear that it was a, a kind of cancer that people had, many people had, tens of thousands of people every year. It was like, oh, okay, great. So there's a protocol and there's language for all of this and there's systems for all of this and there's metrics by which they're going to evaluate my progress. And so I can relate over and over and over again to that. And so can everyone, I'm sure. That's what your podcast does. That's what all your storytelling does. It lets us feel like we're not alone. Well, this is why somehow, and I don't know how, somehow we have got to teach kids that if you tell somebody your thing that you're so embarrassed about, I cut, or I think I have a crush on my best friend, or I cheated, or I have my period and I don't have anything, or whatever the thing is that you can barely imagine yourself spitting the words out, you are that much closer to somebody else saying, me too. And me too, like the reason why that movement's so powerful is because it's these tiny little syllables, me too, that are life-changing. Okay, so this one really touched me as the mother of a gay son and trying to find the words to describe how that went down for us mm. and you captured it. You can be struggling to let go entirely and still be fully supportive at the same time. So that is going to be my new quote when people say, ask me how it was because I, I could never come up with how I could explain why I cried, but also loved my son so deeply. Right, right. Well, that's the thing about my friend who did that podcast with me about her son that was really a gift, was that she, in the same conversation, and he was in the room when she was talking and she was in the room when he was talking. So that says volumes. If you've listened to the episode or if you go to listen to the episode, imagine that, that they, it wasn't, everything they said, they said in front of each other, knowingly. But she said both that it was a tragic loss for her. She always wanted a daughter. She wanted to raise a strong woman. She wanted to have this mother-daughter thing going. She wanted to go on girls' trips with her mom and her daughter. She named her daughter something that was a family name that passed through generations. All that meant a lot to her. And she totally loved this kid to pieces and couldn't have been more proud of him. She also said, this experience has shown me sort of like next level emotions that I, that I don't know that I could have experienced any other way. And in that sense, I'm glad. I'm glad to be on this plane of existence because I think that a lot of people give a lot of lip service to unconditional love. And I bet we do all have it for our children, but not everyone is tested on that point. So like I knew this woman who would taught me some writing stuff years ago, 20 years ago, and she was the mother of a schizophrenic that was on America's Most Wanted. She literally had no idea where her kid was. And she loved this kid. And she knows something that I don't know. She knows that for real, the unconditional thing is real for her. That's what my friend was saying too, is that like, I actually have experienced that there's no limit to my love. Did you read Andrew Solomon's Far From the Home, I think? Uh, Far From the Tree? Far From the Tree. Phenomenal. Yeah. One of the I most mean, the beautiful, thoughtful, well-written books on the shelf. Okay, so the next one, Trust Your Gut. Um, Annie mm -hmm. Baptiste. So the first, first one, you have to believe that there are things that you and your gut don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm really drawn to the idea of intellectual humility. Like, I think it's a real unlocking if you can 
integrate it into your being. And I think that it's really fun to operate from a place of conviction, constant conviction, but it's kind of a low growth mentality. Like you won't actually learn anything if you're super sure that you've already got the answer. And then the other excellent point that Annie made, who is the head of product inclusion at Google and this kind of spectacular young woman, I think she's like 30 years old, is that your gut is really honed by your life experience and your life experience probably more than the average person appreciates is defined by the color of your skin. And so your gut isn't this infallible thing. It's a thing that's constantly being informed by your experiences in the world. And those experiences are deeply affected by whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're black or white, whether you're straight or gay, whether you have money or you don't have money. Like these are defining things in terms of the way the world receives you. That's the base material of your gut. Well, and I love what you just said about growth because it ties right into the next one, which is when it comes to perspectives to think about and not or. That has been such a fun thing for me. Uh, so I put on on um, Facebook the, kind of the final week of the campaign, the presidential election. You know, I know a lot of people who don't fit into the boxes. They may vote Democrat or vote Dem- or Republican fairly consistently, but that doesn't mean that they're in on every single piece of the policy. And so I just want to make space for everybody to claim it here. And 400 people in like a half an hour posted, I am pro-choice, but would never have an abortion. I am the mother of a soldier who thinks the military is too big. I am a scientist who wants the vaccine, who goes to church on Sundays. I am dot, dot, dot. And that it was so interesting not only exactly what they said, but how many people needed to say it. How many people needed to raise their hand and say, I am and. I'm a little bit Republican and a little bit Democrat and a little bit independent. Like I don't sign off on the whole thing. I mean, that's nobody's acknowledging that. I actually think I I was trying to think about what running theme you have going through all the interviews. And I I thought it is this duality of being two things. You're talking about that over and over and over again on every interview, Mm -hmm. which is loving fiercely and, and feeling tremendous loss. And just, you know, the fact that we learn to do that all the time, but somehow we're not given permission to do that. Yeah. And and I think it's really important for kids. Like it, it's sort of, butts up against that other thing about how you're supposed to be careful when you're talking to kids and giving them feedback that you don't say, you know, there's just a a world of difference between you told a lie and you are a liar. Like you told a lie and you're a fundamentally honest person or you are a great student, but you don't read books out of class or you are one of the jocks, but you're also kind of sensitive. How do you practice anti-reductionist thinking in your house in front of them so that they can adopt it so they can get there faster than we're getting there? You know what I mean as adults? I, I think that we can practice that at home and it will it will change. It will change so much for our kids. And the other thing is that you talk with Wanda Holland Green, who is so impressive, and the topic was finding common ground. 
you asked her, is there one thing that ties people together? And I think her answer to me feels like the hope of the future, that all people, in, in particular all mothers, are fiercely protective of their children with a deep desire to protect them. And that's the place we can all meet, right? Well, you know, it's so interesting is that I have this great friend who uh, I won't mention by name, but when she heard it, she said, I loved that episode so much, even though I didn't agree with the first thing Wanda said. And I said, you didn't, you don't believe that all women are fiercely protective of their children. And she said, my mom wasn't. Wow. My mom wasn't able to, to do that for me. You know, my mom was busy with her own concerns. And this was a kid who would wake up as a seventh grader and go downstairs and see the kind of residue of cocaine on the glass coffee table. And, you know, there were different guys coming in, coming and going. And, you know, there's a kid who knew when the mortgage was due. And so she didn't feel protected in the world. So actually I had the that really struck me as like, God, I wish that were true. I really wish that was something that we all had in common. But I know at least one person for whom that's not true. I mean, I guess what I wonder is that mother never desired to be the person. When you throw addiction and abuse and all sorts of other things, like mm-hmm. at, at her deep core, but that doesn't make it okay it's for true. the girl. It's it true. doesn't make it okay for her daughter, but... Yes, 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 that's true. That is true. I agree with you. Um, so also with Wanda Holland Green, um, recognizing our agency and this idea. Yeah, I, yeah, I do. I love that word. <laughs> I really love that Me word. Me too. I do yeah. too. Yeah, I, I, that is something I've taken, uh, I don't know, I think about it and much of the time, especially with, I have one daughter and I don't know, there's something about that word, but it's for boys, for everybody. But this idea of when we're raising our kids and being aware of when to hold their hand and when you're supposed to hold your own hand. Yes. So I I had told her this funny story about Georgia walking in the low water when she was maybe, I'm going to say three and a half. And she tripped on the bottom of the, this little pond lake thing and she went under and nobody could see her. It was just, and everybody saw it happen. And I screamed and about 12 people ran into the water, including the lifeguard. And we're just throwing our hands all over the water to try to touch some part of her. And finally, her hair crossed my fingertips and I just yanked her out of the water. And she said, Georgia, self. Like she was just so proud of herself that she had gone in the water by herself. And Wanda said, you know, that's an example where you really do need to dive in. But it's the rare example. Most times in her experience as as a 30-year educator of kids, the parents are, are... reaching in way too much and that it's their own hand they need to be holding, not their child's. And, you know, I think everybody has, everybody doles out agency or the idea of agency in funny, inconsistent, uneven ways. Like in our house going way back, it was like, you fill out all the forms. Like if you're going to go to camp in the summer, you should fill out all the forms and you should sign up and I'll give you my credit card. You can put it in and then you can bring it all to me and I'll look it over and, and you know I'll tell you what our health insurance number is and that kind of stuff but like you should do that and you know I didn't I stopped arranging rides for them like pretty early on I was like oh, I don't know I don't know Georgia there's going to be 35 people at lacrosse practice and we all live a mile from the field so I'm just going to say why don't you get a ride home so those were good examples of me letting go and letting them take some 
you know, practice just getting, getting their own shit done. But there are other ways in which I am way up in their dish (laughs) and that I don't even recognize them as opportunities for agency, you know, where I'm really afraid that they're not going to do it right. And so I must intervene. And that intervention is at, is, is, is a cost to them that, that need of us to intervene. I mean, this is why I wanted to have four kids. I was like, I can't, I'm going to blow it. I need a lot going on in my life, or I'm going to be way too involved. And I, I think I am. I mean, I, in some ways, I think even with all the stuff I have going on, I mean, I'm writing books and I got a kid's book coming out and I'm doing a podcast. I got the TV show on PBS and still I have too much time to invest in them in ways that are, are probably counterproductive. Maybe it's not a timing issue. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like the, the, if you were to like take some kind of inventory of my heart yeah, right. you know, or my mind yeah. share, like the whatever work I'm doing is just a sliver and the, the great bulk of it is. Well, it makes a them. good case for priority, <laughs> right? It's yeah. very easy to yeah. see. So the other idea is when, when you're feeling stuck about giving something away, whether that's your time, your energy, gifts, right? And um, being flooded with this renewed sense of agency, which is such a lovely thought. Yeah. Yeah, she's really she's really a wise woman. We're, we've stayed in touch and we're going to do another thing together soon. But yeah, I, I wrote down as many notes as you did probably <laughs> when Wanda and I were talking. Okay, so you talked to someone with a lot of pedigree, Catherine Hayhoe about how how to make people care about big things. And the conversation was particularly about climate change. Yeah. And and I loved what she had to say, but frankly, your daughter stole the show. (laughs) You spoke to your daughter, you you interviewed your daughter, Claire. And honestly, I walked in the house and said, I want to get solar panels. I want to start composting. And it really had such a huge impact on me. Like just to hear hear a 17-year-old be so clear, have such clarity. And you and you really bravely asked the question, what could we do better? And she did not hesitate. She knew exactly. <laughs> she had, she, that gun was loaded. It was, she, she was waiting for the question. But I thought one of the most interesting parts of it was that when you and Catherine were talking, it was all about creating the right story so that we could understand something that was too abstract for us to, to grasp. Yeah. And yet, why could Claire get it without those stories. Well, you know, it's funny. I, uh, two things Claire mentioned immediately was like, I I asked her, how did the message get through to you? How did you become an environmentalist? And she said, planet earth, remember the BBC shows with David Attenberg and then Oprah had one. And there was one on, uh, you know, there's, there's been like four mega documentary series about the planet where the photography is incredible. You know, they go from like the 6,000 tree frogs to the gigantic Komodo dragon and, you know, everything on the Serengeti and from the drones. And she said those watching that, taking that in over and over again, because we watched more than one of those series over more than one year, really made her love the planet and wanted the planet to be okay. And she said, and the other thing is that on social media, there are always these adorable little animals that are on the verge of extinction. And she said, I think if I were going to try to make more people like me care about the environment, I would just keep putting adorable, irresistibly cute pictures of little animals that are on the verge of extinction. Because, And that squares perfectly 
with what I've learned from interviewing Nicholas Kristof, who's the New York Times writer who's trying to get people to change their thinking about global poverty and 10 other major issues. And he told me, statistics bomb. If I tell you like 30 million people are starving in such and such a country every day, the people's eyes just glaze over. If I tell you there's a little girl who's four years old who has a curious George dog doll and a Dora the Explorer backpack and she has big brown eyes and her name is Sama and her stomach's distended because she hasn't had solid food in four days. Like the money just pours in. And so that's a thing to know and to use when you're trying to trigger change and rally troops to make something big happen, like people care about the environment. You've got to leverage what's known about how we work as people. And we like stories. We are storytelling animals. And we do not, statistics do not move us emotionally. I always felt that way about the Holocaust, like the numbers meaningless. I know it's bigger than anything I can imagine, but you tell me that story about the one girl or the what whatever the girl, story it is. Yeah, up in her yeah. attic. I mean, you know, it's funny. One of the most memorable, I've, I've thought a lot about information design and like how you would s- set up, say, a museum or a sculpture or a piece of art to make people feel a certain way. And the Holocaust Museum, at the very end of it, you walk through this room and there's 4,000 pairs of shoes that were taken off of Jews before they went into the gas chambers. And they're real shoes. So there's little pumps and there's soldier's boots. And then there's like little girl shoes, you know, like Mary Jane's. And, you know, it, 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 that's impact. That somehow that gets through in a way that all the numbers in the world couldn't. Yeah, it takes your breath away. It's sucker punched. Okay, so our last question that we ask all of our guests, what is the biggest myth about teenagers? That they don't care. They totally care. I mean, sometimes they care about things more than we do. And that, and that they're small-minded, that they're all about themselves. You know, like I used to tell this joke on tour or just make this kind of flippant remark when I was out doing book readings that, you know, people would say, oh, how, how do your kids feel about your books? And I'd say, oh, they don't care. My kids are teenage girls. So they're like walking around with a lampshade on their head and on the inside are just mirrors. And everybody would laugh, ha, 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 because all they think about is themselves. But that's not true. Like I, I'm, I'm continually amazed at how much my kids could tell you about me and my husband and my parents and my brothers and my in-laws. Like they are taking it in the larger world and they are taking in different people's needs and concerns. It doesn't, it's not always top of mind. It's not always what they're talking about, but I'm finding that they're way more broad-minded than perhaps I once thought. Kelly Corrigan, thank you so much for giving us a lot of your time. Sure. It was really fun. Thanks for joining us for Your Teen with Sue and Steph. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Also, if you want to receive our newsletter, head on over to yourteenmag.com. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the episode to a friend. 
You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.